We are in the book of Romans. Whenever I stand up to teach. If you'd like to turn to Romans chapter 3. This book is arguably the most comprehensive presentation of the gospel in the scriptures. Um, it's, it's not only, it not only declares the full message of the gospel, the details of the gospel, but it works out the theology of the gospel in, in a very deep way. And also the response that the Lord calls us to as a result from it. And so far in, um, in Romans 1 and 2, Paul's been making the case of humanity's sickness, right? Um, what, the, what Romans is, is telling us about the gospel is that it, it is a clear communication of both the bad news of the malady that inflicts mankind, and it also is a work that communicates the good news of the remedy that God has provided for that malady or for that sickness. And as I mentioned in Romans 1 and 2 so far, what we've seen is God has communicated to his people, to all who are listening or reading this word, um, that this sickness, this malady, affects and afflicts everyone. Everyone in mankind. And first we saw this in chapter 1. He indicted and he accused the Gentiles of their fallenness before God. Uh, what he pointed out was that he said, you know, as the Gentiles were receiving revelation, he says, they basically looked past it. They didn't recognize the truth that was being told to them. He even says that what can be known about God is plain to them because he's shown it to them in the actual work of creation, right? Uh, in verse 20 of chapter 1, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So even though they didn't know that God existed by the, testi uh, uh, by the testimony of creation, they, or even though they did know that God existed by the testimony of, cre of creation, they chose to not honor him or give thanks to him. And as a result, they turned to idolatry. Instead of turning to the true and the living God, they turned to actually worship the creation. Uh, and I was thinking of that as almost akin to somebody walking onto a beach and seeing an elaborately put together sandcastle. And then looking at that sandcastle and claiming that the wind and the waves built that over the course of time, and then beginning to worship that actual castle. That's essentially what the Gentile is doing when they have been given the testimony of nature, of creation, and saying there, there is a creator that put all this together, and they have turned from it. And they begin to actually worship the creation itself as opposed to the one who made it. So as a result of their idolatry and the sinfulness that comes out of that, that the sinful life that follows, it says in verse 20, they are without excuse. So Paul indicts the Gentile because of the rejection of what is clearly communicated in nature. But then in chapter 2, Paul moved on. And then here he begins to indict and accuse the, Gent uh, the Jew of the same rejection of God. Interestingly enough, even though they had the law of God, even though they were instructed in the law of God. They served as teachers 
of the law of God. And it says in chapter 2, they even boasted in the law of God. Paul, in verse 23 and 24 of chapter 2, says that they dishonored God by breaking the law, and thereby they blasphemed the name of God among the Gentiles. These people that were called out specifically by God to be his chosen people, to be a testimony to the world of the creator God that saves, they were to be his ambassador to the world. These very same people are the ones that broke the very law that he gave them. They did not serve as his ambassadors. In fact, as the scripture just said, they blasphemed him by their lies. And as a result of their hypocrisy and their unfaithfulness, they too were without excuse. And they stood equally guilty before God, just like the Gentiles did. And so, in addition to that, at the end of chapter 2, Paul reminds the Jew that just because they've been born into a Jewish family, just because they received all of the Jewish ways of life and the hallmarks of Jewish identity in terms of, of specifically the, the sign of circumcision, these things in and of themselves didn't automatically make them secure and beloved children of God. In other words, in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2, he points out that it isn't the externals that count. No one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly. But rather, it's the internal reality that matters. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, and not by the letter. You know, for an example... You can be raised in a family that absolutely loves the Buffalo Bills. You can be raised right from the cradle, right, to, to love them, to start to be watching them as they go to training camp, to put the flag outside your home and the bumper sticker on the car, to buy season tickets, to be there to get their autographs. You can have all of that, and yet none of that makes you an actual member of the Buffalo Bills. I think we all agree with that. All of the externals do not make you an actual member of that team. This very same thing exists with regards to us in the church, right? We can be born into a Christian family. We can be given the blessing of, of being baptized. We can be given the blessing of the Lord's table. We can memorize scripture as kids. We can go to VBS. We can go to work camp. And yet, none of those make a kid or an adult, a Christian. Just being in that environment does not bring life to them. And so that's, that's the point that Paul is making with regards to the Jews. He's basically saying just because you're Jewish doesn't mean that you are right with God. And so that's the setup as we enter into Romans chapter 3, and that's where we're going to begin today. And as he begins the chapter, Paul continues dealing with the Jews here in the first several verses because he knows that what he has just said has totally unnerved them. They've got this idea that they are the children of Abraham. They are God's chosen people. Of course we're, we're connected to the Lord. Why, why would we think anything else? They thought that they were something special by virtue of them being a Jew. But Paul has just told them that if their Jewishness is merely external and cultural, 
then they're no different in God's sight than the Gentiles that are worshiping idols in nature. And to the, and to the Jew, that was a horrific thought. Because the Jew at this time looked at the Gentile world and saw them as nothing but fuel for hell. They saw themselves as the chosen people and the rest of the world was gone to the wayside. That was the reality. That's how they viewed, that was their world view. And so what Paul is saying here is totally off the wall. It is totally taking the wind out of their sails, if you will. And so Paul deals with them by posing a series of questions that he knows that they're thinking as a result of what he's just said. They're rhetorical questions. He's obviously not expecting them to answer uh, back and forth. Um, but rather, he's going to use it uh, to expose the foolishness of what they have been working out in their own minds. And he wants to do this in order to correct their thinking. This is Paul, a pastor. He's got a pastoral heart. He wants to correct the thinking of his people. He wants to, to guide them into all truth by the word of God. And the first question that he poses is in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? In other words, if being born Jewish and being raised as a Jew doesn't guarantee a favorable position with me before God, what's the point? What's it matter if I'm Jewish then or not? How am I any better off by being raised a Jew? That's essentially what he's asking. And that's what the Jew would be asking. And Paul's answer is in verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That word oracle, when it's translated, uh, translated oracle, actually means utterance. Somebody that's uttering, uh, 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 having an utterance. And Paul's saying that of all the people in the world, it's the Jews that were given the incredible blessing of being the recipients of the actual utterances of the, uh, or the spoken word of God himself. You know, though the Gentile world was given the ability to see God's hand, God's existence, by looking at nature. And by that, they could see the invisible attributes of God. It was, that in and of itself was just a very limited revelation. Even though it was sufficient enough of a revelation for them to, to render them without excuse for their idolatry, it nevertheless was really only partial. There's only so much information, only so much you could really gather by natural revelation, by just looking at the trees and the stars and the ocean. But it does clearly communicate some things to us, right? By it, they could acknowledge God's existence. They could acknowledge God's power. They could acknowledge God's wisdom, the fact that they looked at how intricately this is all put together. So there must be some incredibly wise being behind all of this. It declared God's creativity, and even that sense of his ruling authority. Because even if you think about those that have a, uh, a pagan view of the existence of God, they, they, they recognize that there must be something beyond themselves that they have to look to, and they hope that they asked for, for the blessing of their fields and their crops and so forth. So there was some type of a, of a, of a, of a ruling authority that they were acknowledging just by looking at, at creation. And all of this would be based only on what they could deduce from the observations that they made as they interacted with the natural world. 
But the Jews were privileged by being the people to whom God spoke and revealed himself personally. It's kind of like, um, it's one thing to go into an art gallery and to see a picture that you are totally amazed by, right? And you can look at that painting and, and, and just love what it is communicating to you in terms of its artistry. But that's only going to go so far. But if you were to sit down with the artist and she were to take you through her whole thought process about what went into this picture that she just depicted on canvas, I mean, you've got a totally revolutionized view of that painting. And that is a, a very weak example, but yet one that fits in terms of, of what God has done in, his, in the declaration of his word. He has communicated to us the, the reality of what is in God's mind and heart as he has given us creation and as he, as he has brought us into being as his people. That's the advantage that you had in being the recipients of God's word. They, in a sense, they were enjoying VIP status with God because they were the people that God elected to first communicate his heart to through the spoken word. And by way of that privilege, the Jew was given insight, right? Given insight into the actual nature of God, into the character of God, right? The fact that his nature, that he is holy and just, into his character, that he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It gives insight into the purposes of God, right? He declares in advance what he is actually doing. And ultimately, he's declaring to God, to the people of this world, that he has a plan for salvation. And lastly, it communicates the expectations that God has of his creation, right? Worship, honor, obedience. And so in short, God gave the Jew the revelation of his will and what it is that pleases him so that they would no longer be walking in darkness and in the futility of their rebellion, but rather that they would walk in the light of intimate, trusting fellowship with him. And so by being a member of this people group, every Jew was supremely privileged and advantaged by having access to that direct revelation of truth from God himself, which is absolutely mind-blowing when you think about that. And if that was said of the Jew in the first century, how much more is that true about the church? I mean, we've been given not only the Old, the Old Testament revelation, but we've been given the New Testament revelation, and we've been given the indwelling Holy Spirit who has promised to lead us into all truth. I mean, this, his, his, the blessing of his revelation to his people has abounded over the course of redemptive history. And that in and of itself is reason for us to bow down and worship him moment by moment, every day. We've been given access to the heart of God, to the mind of Christ, and that serves as a great source of wisdom and power for us to utilize in our daily walks. But, you know, it's kind of like uh, what Uncle Ben says to Peter Parker in the uh, Spider-Man movie, right? He says, with great power comes great responsibility, right? That's how it is with God's Word. I didn't see that movie. <laughs> He's given us his truth, 
which is a great responsibility. And as the New Testament says, to whom much is given, much is expected. There is a requirement upon us as being the stewards of God's word. And that was no less true for the Jew even at this time, even though they only had the Old Testament. I say only the Old Testament. What a blessing. But that, for the Jew, at this time, that was what they were called to as well. A life of unwavering service and allegiance to the Lord. And so we are called to the same unwavering obedience and allegiance as well. So, after making that point and reminding them of that advantage, that they've been given access to these utterances of God, Paul moves on in verse 3 by posing the next question that, that he anticipates from his audience and that he's actually challenging them with. Verse 3 says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? With this question, Paul's using it as a springboard, if you will, uh, to respond to the insinuation by the Jews that he's disparaging the faithfulness of God by saying that the Jew is not secure in his position with God. The thinking goes something like this. God chose the Jews to be his people. He entrusted them with his word. He gives them the sign of the covenant in circumcision, marking them as a people separated from everyone else for him. He promises that he would deliver them into a land of milk and honey, and that he would be their God, and that they would forever be his people. And yet here, Paul, according to the Jew, this is the insinuation, they're saying that, um, he's saying that if there were some Jews that were unfaithful, that God, as a result, will go back on his promises to them and prove himself to be unfaithful by not saving them as he promised, but rather judging them along with the Gentiles. It's the kind of thinking that causes the Jew to ask with great cynicism, does the unfaithfulness of some Jews blow the whole thing up? Are God's chosen people, are, are we God's chosen people or not? I mean, what's, what's, the, what's the deal there? What's going on? Are, are, are we his? Will Will God renege on his promises because some people prove to be unfaithful? Is God's faithlessness or faithfulness contingent upon the people's faithfulness? And how's Paul answer? Paul answers in verse 4, very simply and affirmatively, by no means. In other words, absolutely not. May it never be, is a way one of the other translations puts it. That expression being used there actually means uh, it's a total impossibility. There's no way that it's possible for man's faithlessness to somehow cause God to be unfaithful. And then he backs that affirmation about God's faithfulness up with these words. At the, at the tail end of verse 4, he says, Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may just be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So these words are actually taken from Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is where King David is, after being confronted by Nathan for his sin with Bathsheba and for conspiring to have Uriah killed, 
Okay, this is that, that incredible psalm of lament that David has before the Lord where he cries out to the Lord for the cleansing that his life desperately needs. And, this, and, and this, that last part of verse 4 that I just read, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged, that's actually taken from that verse. In the full context of it, of that psalm, this is what David says. He says, before this, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. He's speaking to God. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's declaring before God that he recognizes, I've blown it, and your judgment of my sin is absolutely spot on. It is unquestionable. It is undebatable. Paul uses then that passage to make the same point about God's faithfulness, but he adjusts it a bit by saying that God will prevail when he is judged. If you notice the way that, that it's rendered here in Romans, it says prevail when you are judged, speaking that God is, on, is being judged at this point. When David said that God will be blameless in his judgment, he's referring to God being, the just, being just and blameless when he judged David. But in this passage, Paul makes the same point by making God the focus of judgment by sinful man. And maybe even in a veiled way, talking about the accuser of the brethren, God, the devil himself, who is constantly accusing God. That's because sinful man and Satan are always shaking their fist at God and accusing him of wrongdoing. I mean, you hear that so often. If God were truly a God of love, then how could he let these things happen? That's the cry of the world. They blame God and they say it's because of him, since he's in charge, he's responsible for that, all of this evil's coming to pass. But despite their intentional disparaging and impugning of his character, God still prevails. He's always faithful to his word, and nothing that man ever does can cause his faithfulness to falter. Which, of course, is a fantastic word of encouragement for each one of us. We know that God, at his word, will prevail. Whatever he has promised to us, he will do. Then Paul moves on, and he addresses the next outrageous insinuation that can only come from the lips of unbelief. Look at verses 5 through 8. He says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. The argument that's posed here is the epitome of arrogance and disrespect towards the holy character of a sovereign God. It's essentially kind of like, um, uh, it's kind of like a, a bunch of drug lords in a city saying to the chief of police and to the mayor, hey, come on, why are you guys coming down so hard on us? He says, you know, our activities make you guys look good. I mean, we secure your jobs. When you arrest us, you get all the headlines in the paper. 
I mean, this is job security. We're just doing this thing, and you guys are making out best after it's all done. I mean, if you heard anybody make that argument, you'd say it's ridiculous. Well, that's exactly what's being said here. First off, such an argument is, is it's nothing more but foolishness. Never is evil to be perpetrated or tolerated in order to do some kind of quote-unquote good, that some kind of good might come as a result. But secondly, even more importantly, it's an argument that's an affront and an insult to God himself. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, to think that God is using man's sin in order to glorify himself is blasphemous. By this statement, you are impugning the righteous purity of God. I mean, the only response to such a foolish statement as that is what Paul says. This is their condemnation is just. There's, there's not even words that we, we don't even argue at this point. That's just such a ridiculous statement. Just, it just needs to be condemned. And we move on. And that's all he does. He, he deals with it right there. He says their condemnation is just. So this ends his argument, if you will, or, or his teaching to the, to the Jewish people, if you will. If you, again, in Romans 1 and 2 so far, he's addressed the Gentiles directly, and then he took Romans 2 and started to address the Jews directly, and it carried over in a part of chapter 3. And now, starting at verse 9, it seems like he's making a segue. He's kind of not just addressing the Jews any longer. He's moving on to his, uh, to his conclusion, if you will, of this argument that he's been building so far. So having dealt with the challenges of his assertion, that the external Jewishness of the Jews doesn't secure them safely in a relationship with the true and living God, Paul moves on by asking a final concluding question. He says in verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? Now, there are only a couple of translations that have the word Jews in that verse. The ESV, the RSV, and the New Living Translation that I found. Most others just render it like this. He says, what then? Are we any better off than they? And this is probably the better way to render this text. One, because the word Jew is not actually in the original text of Scripture at this point. It's implied by the translators. Uh, and then the second point is that it makes more sense of the way that the passage flows. And I'll try to work that out for you here. Paul's already declared that the Gentiles are guilty before God in chapter 1. And with Romans verse 8 of chapter 3, he's already declared that the Jews are guilty before God as well. So having done that, he turns now to the believers in Rome that he's actually written this letter to. He's talking to the church. And he asks them, in light of the condemnation of the unbelieving Jew and the unbelieving Gentile, he says, what about us? Are we Christians any better off? And his answer is pretty straightforward. Verse 9, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under sin. You know, whenever we engage in pointing out the flaws and errors and shortcomings of others, it's, um, it's pretty easy for a smugness to kind of enter into our hearts and minds, uh, almost like a subtle arrogance, we can begin to think that we're something special or superior because we're on the right side of the way things should be looked at. 
while everyone else is somehow lost in their darkness. But Paul, he proactively tries to nip this in the bud. And he does this by making sure that he doesn't close his argument without reminding the church that in their natural state, they too are just as guilty before God. Just like the unbelieving Jew and the unbelieving Gentile. And he does this in verses 10 through 18. He, in these verses, he lays out in the most starkest ways a word picture of natural man, which is all of us, before the tribunal of God. And to make that assault even more powerful and more authoritative, he doesn't rely on his own observations or opinions. He quotes the very word of God, the utterances of God that the Jews were given. Look at verse 10. As it is written. We see that throughout the scriptures. I mean, we, it's, it harkens us back to Jesus during his ministry. It is written. It is written. It's pointing to the, the authoritative declaration, the authoritative utterance of God about these matters. And so, starting in verse, the second part of verse 10, he's going to lay out this word picture from God's observation of mankind about the reality of our natural condition. So look at the second half of verse 10. He starts off by saying, none is righteous. No, not one. To be righteous means that you are in right standing with God. That you could stand before him and his tribunal, his judgment of you, without any blemish on your record, without any accusation being able to stick against you of wrongdoing. It's a declaration that every desire, thought, motive that you've had, and every action that you ever took is absolutely 100% perfect, that you've never had a selfish or evil thought or motive in your life. That's essentially what saying that you are righteous before God is saying. Given that understanding, though, there is obviously no one save the Lord Jesus Christ that could stand and make that testimony before the Lord. The reality is we are all universally evil in God's sight. Everything we do, as R.C. Sproul says, is laced with a pound of flesh. That means there's just that part of our sinfulness that is still attached to even the best works that we do. Because there's nothing that we do that is ever totally selfless. We are incapable of it. Which, again, is an anathema statement to make to this world who thinks that man is basically good. Basically good when compared maybe to man. But when your standard is God that's thrown out the window. And God is right when he says, none are righteous, no, not one. Then he moves on in verse 11, and he says, no one understands. Because the sin nature has marred the image of God that we were created in, and our minds, as a result, our minds are really incapable of truly comprehending and embracing the, the truth of God. 
to understand, that word understand, means to, to put together um, mentally. And the thought that came to mind is, is like a puzzle, right? You've got this multi-piece puzzle, and, and you're putting that together into some order. This idea of man not being, of not being able to understand, it's that idea that man, the natural man is not able to put together the, the truth of God in a coherent way where it makes sense to him. The hardness of their hearts and the blindness of their eyes make them unable to do that. We're incapable of hearing the gospel and embracing it as true. It's not that we can't understand the words. We can understand the words. It's just that the message is gibberish to us in the sense that it doesn't convict. It doesn't move us. We don't assent to it. In fact, we rebel against it. And, you know, the, the common verse that we always turn to, which gives clear understanding of this, is 1 Corinthians 2.14, where Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. They're foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So now you know when you have presented the truth to somebody from God's word and they totally reject you, now you know why that is. Their fallenness is keeping them from, from putting that together in their minds and assenting to it as being absolutely true. So, so far, none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And then in verse 11, he goes on, he says, for no one seeks for God. You know, we hear seeker-sensitive churches, but that is just foolishness. There are no, there's no one who's seeking God. By God's testimony, no one in their natural state seeks him. They may look like they're on a sincere spiritual journey, but in actuality, they're really just looking for a God of their own making, for a God that's going to suit what they want at the moment. Because, in fact, if, if we were really honest about it, most searchers for God are going to approach it with the same motive that Herod had when he searched for the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Herod sought Jesus not to worship him, but to destroy him. Because Jesus has come to make a claim on our lives. He's called us to be his followers. We are to submit our lives fully to him. And that, again, is an affront to the natural man who says, I am the captain of my ship. I'm the one who's going to control my destiny. And so, in that sense, no one is seeking God. Then he, in verse 12, he goes, he goes on and he says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Turn aside is essentially describing that mankind is bent in the wrong direction. Um, it's kind of, and what plays into this is akin to a soldier in a military skirmish who cuts and runs when his buddies are in the midst of a firefight. It's someone who goes AWOL. Isaiah says it in, in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have what? We've gone astray. We've wandered. Intentionally, we've wandered away from the God who loves us. We're not seeking God. We're intentionally, we've tr intentionally turned away from him. And that word worthless, it means useless. 
Again, like a soldier who runs away from a firefight, he's of no value to that group who needs him fighting at that moment. He's worthless. Nothing the, man, the natural man can do is at all of any value in God's sight. And then he goes on and he says, no one does good, not even one. Mankind is capable of doing many things that are beneficial. And they're, they're done with the intention of wanting to be good for people. They, you know, the, the way that the world sees mankind, for the most part, says that people are good. They, they, they like people. They want to do well for them. They want to care for them. And that is true. You can build bridges. You can start orphanages. You can feed the poor. You can care for the sick. But when it's measured again and scrutinized against God's standard for perfection and holiness, it's an utter failure. As I mentioned, everything we do is with a pound of flesh. It's a self-serving motive. Even the things that we call good, which we should keep doing. This, this is not a, a, a derailing against doing good in, in society. But if we're using that as the reason, as the ticket that we're going to hand to God to say, look what I did, God. This is why you should accept me. In God's sight, by the declaration of his word, he says, this is worthless. There is no value. No one has done good. And in verses 13 and 14, I talk about uh, just descriptive. He says, this is speaking of all of mankind. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's a pretty ugly picture. You know, it says in, in Revelation that the Lord Jesus returns and he says that he will cut apart his enemies with the sword of his tongue, with the sword of his mouth. But mankind has a sword in his mouth as well. And unfortunately, he uses it to sinfully cut to pieces everyone around him, everyone that disagrees with him. And it's always for self-serving and ungodly reasons. And I give you no better example than just turn your attention to social media for two minutes. And you'll get many prompts that just show us how people cut each other apart with their mouths. And that's because we speak, that which we speak is, is, is what's predominantly in our hearts. You know, after calling Jesus, or after uh, Jesus called the Pharisees a brood of vipers, he says to them, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We can't but speak that which is already cooking with inside of us. You know, a lot of times they talk about Freudian slips, but a lot of times, Freudian slip, it's, it's, oftentimes it's what we're really thinking, right? And we're just caught in, an un, in a moment where we're unguarded. And all of a sudden the truth flies out. And yet mankind, it, it, interesting here, he spends two verses focusing on the heinousness of man's mouth, on how destructive it is. And I thought that inter it's interesting too. He says their mouth is an open grave. What is inside of a grave? Nothing but decaying bodies that 
that, that, are, that, that smell. And this is a graphic picture to get all of our attention. And it's done purposefully so that we can see how God is viewing the natural man. And then he moves on. He says in verses 15 through 17, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths and are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. Man's not a peaceful and caring creature. We're selfish. We're a predatory creature. From the beginning, when Cain rose up against Abel, history is nothing but a constant litany of man destroying one another. Account after account of people brutalizing and destroying each other for their own self-centered purposes. And why? Again, God's word gives us sight, gives us insight. James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's all because we're not getting what we want. Somebody else has what we want, and we're going to take them on to get it. That is, that is the, the, the characteristic of carnal man. This is who we really are by nature. We are not naturally good. We are naturally selfish and evil. And then he finishes in verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And ultimately, this is man's problem. He's in rebellion, and he has no fear of God. And as such, he shakes his fist at the heavens, and he determines to go his own way. But Proverbs 14.12 says it very clearly for us, doesn't he? It says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but what? Its way ends in death. The natural man thinks he, he knows the right way to go. He thinks he knows the smart way to go. I don't need God. I'm going to go my own way. But God is warning us. He says the way of sinful man is death. It leads to nothing but destruction. If only man would live out and believe Proverbs 9.10 where it says, the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. In God's utterances that he's given us, this is where we find life. This is where we find a path that leads to a life that makes a difference, that truly is a blessing to others, that is no longer evil. It's a life that is redeemed. And so having completed his prosecution, he's acting like a lawyer here, right? He's laying out this case against mankind with the word of God. Paul closes the portion of his message in this part of Romans with these words. The last uh, verses 19 and 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so with these closing words, Paul fulfills his goal in what he's written in, verse, in chapters 1 through 3 of Romans. His goal was to provide the absolutely horrific bad news that all of mankind stands guilty before God and that we rightly are the focus of his wrath and his judgment. And secondly, that there is nothing that mankind can do to remedy that situation. If, if, if Romans were to end at chapter 3, there'd be no hope. We might as well just all go home and 
just forget about anything that matters and just go live our lives the way we want because it's hopeless. So having set that target of, 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 of declaring that in Romans chapters 1 through 3, we could say that Paul can declare mission accomplished. I've done it. I have declared that man is absolutely guilty before God. Now, isn't that encouraging news for us this Sunday morning? <laughs> that you're all, under the weight of what I've been sharing with everyone, I'm sure we're all excited to get out there and share this with others. You know, it's certainly not the kind of message that you're going to hear Joel Osteen speak this morning if you turn on the TV. So what do we do with a passage like this, right? Okay, God has given us this utterance in his word. He's given us three chapters of nothing but bad news. If you've noticed anything that I've read so far, there has been no application. There has been no command by God. Do this, right? A lot of times we look forward to that. You know, in Ephesians, the, the classic example, you got your first three chapters that declare the doctrine of God. And then in the last three chapters, okay, in light of the doctrine, this is what God expects us to do. Therefore, therefore, walk these things out. We, we, we can put our, our mental minds, be, our, our, our heads behind it. We can say, yeah, I can do this. But here, there's, what do we do? What do we do with this fallenness? Well, let me give you just four suggestions. First, we can use what we just read as a guide for us in our prayer closets. The Lord calls us continually to examine ourselves, right? He's, he's at work in us. His will for us, from the scriptures, his will is our sanctification. He wants to mold us into the image of Christ. He doesn't do that just by himself. It is a synergistic work, as you may have heard that word before. It's one where we are working in concert with the Holy Spirit for this shaping of our lives to look like Christ. There's an effort that we're being called to. And so part of that is an examination of ourselves before the Lord. So. What we could do is we can use this chapter and we can work through it saying, Lord, where have I fallen short? Where have I thought that I'm more righteous than I am? Where, have, where has my lip, lips been used like a poisonous snake? And use it just as a reminder of, of where it is that we've fallen short and claim the forgiveness that God has for us in that confession. Secondly, we can use it as real meat and drink for the fuel of our, to fuel our minds so that we accurately see this world as God sees it. That's exactly why God has given us his word. He's given us his word because we can't see it. We talked about this earlier. We can't understand it. But by the work of his spirit and by the declaration of his word, we can begin to understand what it is that's going on around us and make sense of it. We see things from God's perspective now, which is fantastic. And that is very hopeful because we can see through the lies and we can increase in our discernment. The third thing that I thought of that we can use this passage is that we can use it as a reason to praise God for his amazing grace and for his incredible salvation, what he has saved us all from. This describes all of us, and yet he saved us from this mess that we are in. And then lastly, I just thought that we could use it as a springboard to declare the gospel to the lost. 
yes, this is absolutely bad news. That all are guilty and under God's judgment. But you know, the cool thing is, is that that's really good news. In, one, in this sense, we all qualify for the remedy that God has prepared in order to solve this dilemma. We all qualify for the vaccination, the real vaccination that God has given to heal us of our sinfulness. Right? The remedy of the Lord Jesus crucified on a cross on Calvary. His blood shed so that we would be cleansed and that we could walk in newness of life. And so that our lives aren't characterized by what we read through in verses 10 through 18, but they increasingly look, look more and more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, we praise you, Lord. We thank you that uh, you do not You do not beat around the bushes, Lord. And you are not concerned about our feelings in one sense by not wanting to hurt us with hard words, Lord. You present truth to us for the purpose of transforming us, for the purpose of drawing us away from that which has stained us and, 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 and caused us harm in so many ways. So we praise you for your faithfulness to do that, Lord. You've preserved these 66 books all these years, Lord. We know that we have the true testimony of your utterance, Lord, to your people. And it's been passed down that we might benefit from it today. So, Lord, collectively, Lord, we just worship you and we thank you for such a great grace. And I ask that you please apply what we heard from you today, Lord, to our lives so that we might grow in our love for our Savior, grow in our love for you, and grow in our hatred for sin, Lord, that we would truly seek and, and, and plead with the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, just as you have declared that it's your will that we might be sanctified. So, Lord God, on this Lord's Day, we praise you and thank you for your great kindness to us in the message of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name.